I know as a disabled person, I am extremely privileged. And part of the reason why I think I feel so disability-centered is because our community has been overlooked, invisible, and separated and left behind. How can I just use whatever power and privilege I have to fight for more equity, justice, and liberation in the oppressed identities that I hold? Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Tiffany Yu, CEO and founder of Diversibility. Tiffany is an entrepreneur and disability advocate. Named one of the 100 most influential Asian Americans in 2017, Tiffany has been featured in Marie Claire, Forbes, The Guardian, and The Wall Street Journal, and has spoken at the World Economic Forum in Davos, at TEDx, and at Harvard. Together, we talked about disability and identity, inclusion and empowerment, visibility and disability, semantics and their function within the context of a discussion on social justice, and how disability has begun to function within the wellness space. Tiffany, your story is so powerful, and, and how you've chosen to react to adversity is so meaningful. I wonder if you could kind of ground our discussion with your story of being injured in a car accident at age nine. Sure. So I often call these our disability origin stories. And part of the reason why our disability origin stories are so meaningful and so powerful, as you have alluded to, is because all of our stories are different. And I think to the extent that we can get as many diverse disability narratives out there, we'll start to reframe our own thinking of what disability looks like. So for me, as you mentioned, I was involved in a car accident at the age of nine. It was Thanksgiving weekend, and my mom had to travel for a business trip that weekend. So my dad and a couple of my siblings and I thought that we'd see her off at the airport. And on the way home, my dad actually ended up having a seizure and lost control of the car. And as a result, he unfortunately passed away. And I I sustained a couple injuries from the accident, including a couple broken bones in my left leg and then a spinal cord injury that would end up paralyzing my right arm. So I was in the hospital for three weeks. I was actually in a wheelchair for four months as I relearned how to walk. And then still with me to this day, I have the severe nerve injury in my right arm. Now, eventually you had the, the thought, how can I make this obstacle the greatest thing that's, that's ever happened to me? And there was this journalist named George Leonard who was kind of a foundational thought leader at Esalen who had a quote, take the hit as a gift. I'm curious, how long did it take you to come around to this way of thinking? What was, the, what was this initial period like? Mm. So the one thing I didn't mention about this story that I would later learn would be that I... Uh, I would be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. And that happened a little over 20 years after the accident, once I started exhibiting some symptoms and getting triggered by seemingly everyday things. And back to this whole topic of our disability origin stories, I actually think there's a second disability origin story, which is when a person decides to take ownership or pride over their disability identity. And some people might never come to that second story, and that's okay. And for me, it took 12 years. So from a period of about age nine up until, I want to say, age 21, 20 or 21, I didn't tell anyone about the car accident. I think in my Asian culture, death is very stigmatized. Disability is very stigmatized, and trauma, I guess what this car accident was, was also very stigmatized. And in the traditional way that I grew up, you never wanted to shed a light on the things that might cause shame to your family. So I never had an opportunity to tell anyone about what had happened because I was just trying to hide and cover what had happened. So... The short version of it is that it took 12 years, but all of this happened accidentally. So when I think about this thing, how can I make this obstacle the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, right after the point of trauma, at least for me, I definitely was not in that mental state. It was important to my own healing journey to be able to sit in that space of pain and say, I want to validate 
that there is pain and hurt in this story and it's okay to be in that place because I think what had ended up happening was by suppressing it for so long, you know, for that 12-year period of not telling anyone that I was hurting, it actually, I think, made things worse. So the second turning point to me or the second disability origin story was really, I think, becoming curious around what would it look like if I didn't frame myself as a victim in this story, that I didn't continue to go about life with the energy that I was angry at the universe or the world for having this happen to me. There's a book that I really like called Man's Search for Meaning, which I'm sure many, many people have read. And if you haven't, I recommend checking it out from the library. But if I look at what the stages of grief are, the last two stages are acceptance and meaning. And I think oftentimes when we think about grief, we only think about the immediate loss in the beginning. And so when, when you talk about take the hit as a gift, I think you still need to go through all of those stages of grief, of mm. understanding mm-hmm. what your life, life may have been like before, to then saying, okay, I now acknowledge that this is how my life is going to be, and how can I make this into something meaningful? Yeah, really well put. I want to ask you as an aside, the terminology around disabled or differently abled, I've heard both terms, and I would like to ask, what, what, what is preferable? Sure, that's a great question. And language is so important. So for me, I prefer using, if you're talking about the disability community, I prefer I'm a disabled person, or you can use I'm a person with a disability. There is a little bit of a debate between identity first, which is I'm a disabled person, versus person first, I'm a person with a disability. And I think what's interesting between person first and identity first language is that the way I see my disability is the same way I see myself as being Asian or being a woman. And in those other identities, I don't go around saying I'm a person who's a woman or I'm a person who's Asian. I would always use identity first language in those contexts as well. So with regard to differently abled, though, and other euphemisms of the word disability, I think that decades ago, I I will say maybe in the 90s, differently abled was used to, I think, make non-disabled people feel comfortable with disability. And part of the work I'm trying to do is how can we view disability as a neutral term? So when we call someone disabled, there's no hierarchy in how we're identifying them, right? So at the root of ableism is this idea that we think that non-disabled people are better than disabled people. Mm. And at the root of racism or any of the other isms, right, is saying one one identity is better than the other. And so Mm -hmm. when we use a term like differently abled, we actually give power to the stigma that disability is a bad thing. But how can we reframe that disability is not a bad thing? And the more that we use disability like as a term in itself, and the more that we can make it neutral and just an identifier for people, I think the more that we can really, I think, celebrate the diversity that all of us bring in our bodies and in our minds when we show up. That's right. And we all do bring diversity in our bodies. Everyone is differently abled. It's, it's quite interesting to explore the uh, topic of semantics, which I think everyone is well-meaning, and yet the, the terminology often sort of undergirds an emotional debate that is happening around these topics, that, which, are, which are deep, you know, which, which touch a lot of people. Yeah, I think one other, one other thing I'll add there is I, I, recent, I recently figured out a better way to word it, which is oftentimes we'll use disability terms to mean bad things. When you use disability terms figuratively and not literally, it actually further reinforces stigma around disability. So an example could be a lot of people will use the phrase, I was paralyzed by fear. So what's interesting about that is I actually have a form of paralysis, right? And if someone is saying that they're paralyzed by fear, they're saying that paralysis is bad. I heard a statement that was made uh, yesterday around a workshop that I was a part of where people were talking about the blind leading the blind. And, you know, blind people are actually really incredible at wayfinding, you know, and, and, sometimes, and sometimes they'll have a, a guide dog or, or a cane that, that can help them. And so it's like, well, what exactly are you, do you mean when you say the blind leading the blind, right? So, so we come back to this whole idea of semantics, which is, uh, can, we, can we call in that language and, and to try and get a point across, can we make sure that we're not harming people who may hold those other identities? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
wonderful points. I, I, I love your example about the blind leading the blind. And it's also interesting to me the way that the semantics, the acronyms, the terminology always has a trend of changing from decade to decade. It brings to mind the, these, I think it's Magritte, the painter who painted the pipe, and he said, and he wrote underneath the painting of the pipe, this is not a pipe. And in fact, it's a painting of a pipe. The, the, the terminology that we use to refer to persons are not persons, they're words. It's part of this discussion, I think, of identity. Now, you, you, you touched on this a little bit more. You asked the question in one of your talks, what happens when we look at disability as identity, as part of the fabric of who we are? I don't know. Is there more to, um, to speak to around this topic of identity? That's a great question. So I, I will use a visual example, which is when I walk into a room, I view disability as like a blanket, a weighted blanket. <laughs> and so when I walk into a room, I'm draped in my blanket, my, my disability blanket, something I carry around with me all the time. It brings me comfort. It can bring me intimacy. It, it's how I've been resilient or how I've been able to adapt to different experiences I've had in the world. When we don't view disability as identity, it's kind of like the purse or a backpack. Are there cases where I can leave my backpack or my purse at the door and walk into a space, right? And, and, and I will acknowledge, I think what is interesting about the way that I think is that not everyone agrees. So you will meet some disabled people who, well, first of all, they don't want to be identified as a disabled person. They want to be identified as a person with a disability. Um, and part of the reason perhaps why they may want to view themselves as a person with a disability is they want to be seen as a person first, and they don't want to identify with their disability. To which point I would maybe ask them, if you are a person with a disability, can you leave your disability at the door? Or is it something that influences the lens through which you move throughout the world? And one of the things I do talk about in my work is this idea of covering or passing. So passing is this idea that I can hide certain parts of my identity in different situations, which can actually be harmful because it ends up meaning that I don't feel like I can bring my full self and that can have a mental and emotional toll. But I think in the context of this call, right, you can't see my arm. And so to provide context, right, I shared my disability origin story at the beginning of this conversation. So people know, you know, what, because if I didn't share that story, you'd be like, well, why, why is she talking about disability? Why does she care so much about this, right? And so I think for me, when I talk about disability as identity, I just know that it has influenced so much of how I've moved about the world. And I often will talk about disability in the context of trauma and grief as well, right? My work is trauma-informed. There was a fatal car accident that did cause multiple disabilities for me, both invisible and visible manifestations of them. But I think part of what I'm also trying to do when I talk about disability identity is I want to give other people with or without disabilities the permission to just embrace all of the beautiful, cracked parts of who they are. And I forget what the Japanese term is, but there's a term for, I think, a porcelain bowl. And when it's broken, they end up mending the bowl back with this, this golden glue and I just love this idea that the cracks are gold. We will have to touch on intersectionality in the context of this conversation, but it's almost like all of those intersecting identities have made me really proud to be part of the communities that I've been a part of and to find those soft, beautiful moments where I can connect with someone who can see me in my pain and who can see me in my hurt or sees parts of themselves in my story. You'll also hear people talk about, they'll say, you know, disability is only one part of me. It's not the whole part of me. Like focus on the whole self. And I think oftentimes when we phrase things in that way, we are invalidating and diminishing the enormity of what it means to move about the world as a disabled person like the enormity of what it means to move about a non-disabled world as a disabled person, like to live in a world that wasn't designed for us. I think to your point earlier, right, language is just evolving by 
we've, we originally said by the decade, but it's almost like by the month, by the day now. And I think how I have viewed my own disability has become more and more progressive the more that I've gotten to meet other disabled people. And interestingly enough, there was a video that came out where they highlighted a quote of where I talked about how by rooting myself in the disability community, it made me really proud of my disability identity. And the comments on that quote highlight were all, wow, like what a powerful statement. And it kind of got me thinking like, wow, I didn't realize that it was so radical to be proud of part of my identity. Right. And this comes to this whole this comes back full circle to this whole conversation around ableism. Right. Because I think that as a disabled person, the non-disabled world views me as, oh, I, I feel sorry for that person. But how can I flip the script a little bit to say, well, actually, that thing that you think should should cause me shame, quote unquote, or that did, you know, for 12 years, the thing that did cause me shame. I now want to hug it. I want to hug that elephant in the room. I want to hug Mm -hmm. it and I want to say, look at my hand. I know that you're looking. So look, you know, this is my body. Like, let's have, let's have a conversation around, around it and why, why you might feel uncomfortable around, around my body that looks different. Yes. Yes. This is my story. This is a marker of my resilience. This is a marker of my self-acceptance and self-love. And this, all of these are beautiful elements that I have and that I can teach you. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The best gift that you can give the world is by being yourself. And I think I have been on a pretty radical journey since, since, since going to Esalen in October of 20, 2019. I've been on just such a radical journey of self-love and self-acceptance. It feels so liberating to just be myself. And I think about that 12-year period of I, I wore long sleeves all the time to hide my arms. So it's not only the physical manifestation of hiding, but the, I'm sorry, the, liter, the literal manifestation of hiding under these long sleeves all the time, but just how that manifested on my, my own healing journey, my mental health, and now it's all out. Now there are no secrets, right? And mm-hmm. I think oftentimes the things that we feel insecure about, or like one of the things I've been really fascinated about is what Brene Brown calls shame resilience. And for me, that is, how can I look at the things that I feel or that I thought I felt insecure or a little bit of shame about and just shed light on them, shed light on them before I'm ready. And I think about, you know, the, the, my second disability origin story. I shared that story of the car accident 12 years after the car accident. I shared that story and I cried. And I shared that story before I was ready, and now I've, I've shared that story so many times, right? But I shared that story before I was ready because sometimes being courageous is just taking that first step. And you might cry, and I still think back to that moment. It was October 22nd, 2009. I even, I even remember the day. And I cried because not only was I just sad and there was so much pain, but it was the first time that I felt seen in my pain. Like what a beautiful thing it is to see someone else in their soft moments and to just make space for that. Mm-hmm. Just coming back to, I think, this Japanese aesthetic that you're referring to, I think it might be wabi, wabi-sabi, this idea like centered around the acceptance of imperfection, transience. The internet tells me that this aesthetic is sometimes described as one of beauty that is imperfect, impermanent, and complete. I'm not sure if that was the, the one that you're going for. but It is. It's actually, it's, I'm looking at the same thing that you're looking at. It's linked in there. It's, it's called the Kintsugi, and it, and it's, it says um, it's the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery by mending the areas of breakage with lacquer, dusted, or mixed with powdered gold. Kintsugi. Awesome. Okay. Okay. We- <laughs> We, we can sign off on that metaphor. I think that's good. <laughs> I want to return to, to what you were speaking about a, a few minutes ago in regards to intersectionality. Because so, you speak of, on diversity and inclusion in your work. You also think of, you speak about intersectionality. Talk to me a little bit about how your identity, first of all, uh, as an Asian American, intersects with and co-functions with your identity as a disabled person. Mm. So that, that's a great question. And Interestingly enough, I, in January of 2020, I started doing some research on 
the connection between what it meant to be Asian and disabled or what it meant to be Asian and a woman. And what I realized was that there are certain parts of my identity that discriminate against other parts of my identity, which is a little bit of a bold statement. But what I mean by that is by being born a woman, at least for my Asian immigrant parents, I was already not the prized possessions compared to my brothers, right? I guess the reason why intersectionality, and for those who are new to the term intersectionality, it was coined, it was coined by someone named Kimberly Crenshaw, and it's this idea that you can hold uh, multiple oppressed identities, and the intersection of all of those identities either creates like a multiply marginalized experience of how we move through the world. A concrete example of that could be uh, when the COVID-19 pandemic here in the U.S., when shelter in place, there was a lot of anti-Asian racism because there was some misinformation spread that of, of where or who were carriers of COVID-19. One of the interesting things was that I felt very nervous around walking or going to the grocery store because I wasn't sure who was going to harass me and call me Chinese virus or, or who knows because, because I look Asian. At the same time, you know, part of the reason why we're asking people to wear masks and flatten, flatten the curve or slow the spread of COVID is because we don't want to get into a situation where hospitals and doctors are forced to make decisions about who gets a hospital bed or who gets a ventilator and who doesn't in the case something like that might happen. As a disabled person, on paper, in the medical context, I am seen as having a lower quality of life. And so here was a really interesting scenario where, as an Asian person, I was afraid of being harassed or attacked because of misinformation around where COVID came from. And then if it happened that I did contract COVID and needed to go to the hospital, would I be put into a situation where I would experience what we call, what we're now calling care rationing or discriminatory hospital triage practices? I, 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 I'm smiling now because I, I think back to at the height of COVID and, and you know, it's in a way I just, I still don't feel like we're out of, of phase one, but I just felt like that emoji with the brain, with the brain kind of exploding because multiple parts of my identity being so heavily impacted by this pandemic. I, I think the point that I do want to get across though which I didn't highlight as well in that scenario, is that it's really hard to compartmentalize all of these different aspects of your identity. So in that case, I, I could say, you know, if someone on the street like called me Chinese virus and started yelling stuff at me, because I can pass as a non-disabled person if you're not like staring at my arm or, you're not, or I'm not wearing a splint, right? In that, in that scenario, I can pass as a non-disabled person but I'm still being discriminated against based on the, another part of my identity. At the same time, you know, it's interesting as I was having these conversations and trying to advocate for against care rationing, I would get these comments of like, oh, but like you're a young person, like you would, like someone wouldn't put you in that position. And so then in that scenario, it's like age then comes into the picture, right? Because again, with COVID, people were saying, oh, it's only older people who are, who are being impacted. And then when you would actually look at the research, it was, I mean, COVID, COVID doesn't discriminate. <laughs> yeah, I think intersectionality is really important. And it's really something that I want to incorporate into my work too, because even with, even with what we're seeing now with Black Lives Matter, I need to acknowledge that we have racism within the disability community. And so what role do I play as the leader of an organization to make sure that we're lifting up black and brown voices as much as we can? Actually, I recorded a podcast episode with one of my friends named Jerron Herman, and he talked about how even with Black Lives Matter, there was another movement that was happening in parallel called Black Disabled Lives Matter. Which it, and, and, and black trans lives matter. And I think what he had mentioned was interesting about that distinction is that there were even communities of people who didn't feel like the Black Lives Matter movement incorporated their perspectives, right? And this is why intersectionality is so important. And at least for me in my work, my thinking is always, if we can use access, access needs as the baseline, then we can make sure that the disability community is included in women's marches. Right? We can make sure that 
disabled people are included in Black Lives Matter protests and part of that movement. When we don't take intersectionality into account, there are people and communities whose voices just don't feel like they're being heard. It sure is complex. Yeah, but just because it's complex and complicated doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it, right? So, so one of the things I often think about, too, and, and I will speak with other Asian people about this, is the term people of color. And, you know, people of color, even if you look at the depth, like I, I think I had done some research as like where people of color originate from and what it actually means. People of color really just means non-white. And it's mainly, it's mainly just used here in the U.S. Or in, or, in, or in more Western contexts. But I'm a person of color. But even as a person of color, I have experienced an enormous amount of privilege that other people of color, black and brown people, who are also considered people of color, don't have, you know, haven't had, haven't had as much privilege, right? And so that's why I think it's important to make a distinction when we talk about these different communities, similar to the... Uh, beginning of conversation which is like you know should I say disabled like what's the right terminology like just say the word like these days like if we're talking about the black community let's talk about the black community if we're talking about anti-Asian racism that's the context of where where it sits in right none of this is a oppression Olympics unfortunately there's enough oppression to go around but how can we really show up in solidarity for each other and I think that's part of what I'm learning in terms of intersectionality is how can I just use whatever power and privilege I have to fight for more equity, justice, and liberation in the oppressed identities that I hold? Say that again for me real, real quick. I'm, I'm still absorbing that. I, I, I know. I, I think I said it, and then I, <laughs> and then I, and then I was like, I think I want to noodle on what I just said, too. I know, I, and I also know as a disabled person, I am extremely privileged. So what I said before is like, how can I use whatever power and privilege I do have to fight for equity, justice, and liberation in the oppressed ident identities that I hold? And part of the reason why I think I feel so disability-centered is because, and I've said this before, because our community has been overlooked, invisible, and separated and left behind. Let's talk about that, about visibility. I mean, you state that there's yeah. over a billion, a billion people in the world who live with a disability, and you say that's a lot of people who are being overlooked and feeling in, invisible. So, so talk to me about visibility and why it's important in reference to disability. Mm. So there are two parts to this. One is I will acknowledge that the majority of disabilities are actually invisible. The number one cause of disability in the U.S. is depression, with the pandemic, I think we're going to have a lot more people who have mental health conditions um, that will need healing and therapy. So, so I do want to name that. The second part of this is around visibility, disability visibility. I really like this saying that you can't be what you can't see. I think part of why we, we as a community feel so limited in our potential is because our external environment has treated us that way. They haven't shown us a CEO with a visible disability. Or, I like, I, for, for me, I just want to see more disability role models or what Laverne Cox has coined possibility models because you might not want to follow, follow directly in someone else's role, but you at least want to know the vision of where you could potentially go or the potential path that you could take, right? So, so disability visibility, and I think representation at all levels. I'm going to be speaking at a session during Ad Week around representation in ad spaces, like through brand marketing. A lot of the work that I do now is with tech companies and making sure that the things that they design are taking our access needs into account or making sure that their workforce, who they're actually employing, you know, represents the diverse perspective. And even if I just look at, if I, if I look at my own career path, so I started my career in investment banking. The bank that I worked at, I worked at Goldman Sachs. The CEO at the time, Lloyd Blankfein, was diagnosed with lupus and had spoken about that. And then the president of the bank at the time, Gary Cohn, had also spoken about being dyslexic. And I think for me, by having 
the CEO and president of the company I was working at talk about their disabilities made me feel like I could bring my whole self into that workspace and into the world, right? And you and I have talked about liberation. I mean, we've talked about passing and the toll that not being able to bring your full self into spaces has on your mental health, but also just how liberating it is just to be yourself. And so I think as part of that liberation, I think about how can I, how can we make sure that disabled people are infiltrating all different parts of society? Because when we have these different perspectives represented, the things that we're making and the things that we create will be better. There are two research studies that I reference a lot. One is a 2018 Accenture study that talks about the business case for disability employment and disability inclusion. And it says, your company will be more profitable, will have more revenue if you hire disabled people. This is not just a moral or a social or a nice to have. Like, if you want to be profitable, incorporate disability perspectives. There's another research study that's done from an organization called Return on Disability, which says, Disabled people globally control $1 trillion of annual disposable income. And if you add our family and friends into that, that becomes $8 trillion. And if I'm close with my friends and there is a business that I can't access, I'm going to tell my friends and family and encourage them to vote with their dollars and not be a consumer of that place. I think what's interesting is that voting is not just what's happening in November. <laughs> Voting is also what you choose to talk about on social media. It's who you choose to follow. It's where you choose to spend your dollars. And so when I, when I talk about disability visibility, it's really a call to action for businesses and corporates who control a lot of economic power in our world to make sure that we're seen. Because when we're seen, we ensure that future generations can feel as liberated as I feel right now. This has been, you know, Sam, it's been 22, 23 years since the car accident. This has been a two-decade journey. If I know now what I knew 20 years ago, I think my life would look very different. Well, obviously, visibility is part of creating a just and equitable world for disabled folks. What are the other elements in that equation for you that you've thought of? What you're also making me think about with disability visibility and part of what is DiverseAbility's mission statement is how can we amplify as many diverse disability narratives as possible. I think that when we don't have disability visibility, when we don't have this representation in media or in employment or all these other areas, we end up having a very singular narrative of what we think disability looks like. And to touch on some of the other themes that we talked about in this conversation, this idea that so many of us, I think, grew up with the narrative that to be disabled was a bad thing, that we should feel sorry for disabled people, and that we should take care of them. And I want to acknowledge that interdependence is very important, but at the same time, by only locking us into those pity, victim, shame narratives, it's another way that our community is dehumanized. So how can we share conversations on the other spectrum of that to show what disability joy looks like, to show what it looks like to be disabled and well, to show what it looks like to be disabled and thrive and live your best life, right? Where, where are we getting those narratives? And how can we share more of those narratives for the next generation? This is where I think the visibility comes in as well in, the, mm. in sharing the diversity of the stories. Well, talk to me about being disabled and well. And, and my, my understanding is you mean that in terms of uh, wellness. Like, t talk to me about your experience being at Esalen. Esalen has a special place in my heart, as I'm sure for those who have had the opportunity to attend it does. But I grew up with the narrative or believing that being disabled and being well were mutually exclusive. And what that meant for me is that I did not invest in my physical, emotional, mental, even my social wellness, because I said, I'm disabled. Uh, disabled people are, are socially isolated, so I'm going to isolate myself too. You know, disabled people, um, I think part of the disassociation I'm trying to create between the, with disability is I think oftentimes when we, when we talk about disability, sometimes some people will think broken. And so back to this conversation of dis being disabled and well, 
is like, I was like, I don't need to invest in my physical wellness because my body, there's something broken about my body. But there's nothing broken about my body. Like I, so now I live in San Francisco. I mean, I love hiking. And hiking has nothing to do with my arm. Or maybe it has a little bit because the way your arms swing. But why did I count myself out of enjoying that activity just because part of my body was disabled? I think when I was at Esalen, which to me is just this space of just being so entrenched in nature and beauty, I think we just connect with our center. One of the things that I am trying to do is figure out how we can make wellness more accessible because for so long I deprived myself of the ability to access that space within myself and even, even you know, access to spaces like, even access to going to spaces like Esalen. How can we democratize who, who gets there, right? We, we talk so much about privilege and I, I think part of what I want to use my power and privilege for when it comes to wellness is how can we talk about what it looks like to be disabled and well? And how can we reframe wellness that it's not just, it's not just going to yoga class, it's not just going to Esalen, but how can we incorporate those practices into our daily life? One of the things I'm doing right now, I'm participating in what's called a gratitude adventure where I'm just in a WhatsApp group where we'll, we'll, meet, we'll meet once a week, but every single day we have touch points of sharing, both uplifting the person who shared their gratitude before, but then also holding us accountable to rooting ourselves and sharing what our daily gratitudes are. And the reason why I want to bring up gratitude, because this car accident happened over Thanksgiving, which to me... Um, and, and I don't know how international your, your listeners are, but Thanksgiving is this holiday in the U.S. Because the car accident happened in such close proximity to Thanksgiving, which to me, like, represents gratitude, I disassociated. I stopped thinking that I had the ability to tap into that place, you know, talk about my own wellness journey. And it wasn't until, I want to say maybe 2015, so this is 18 years after the car accident where I fully felt in my heart what it felt like to feel grateful for my life and the fact that I'm alive and, you know, the fact that we have clean air, that we've had clean air for a little over a week here in San Francisco. And to really actually believe it, you know, it's one thing just to say that you're grateful for something. Then showing up at Esalen in October of 2019, it's been this journey of, I think for me, very slowly unlocking all of these different parts of wellness for me. I have this acronym that my friend came up with called PFJ, which stands for Play, Fun, Joy. And I, again, coming back to this car accident, and, and I think the reason why I was so excited that, to have this conversation with you, Sam, is because I think that grief and play, PFJ, Play, Fun, Joy, grief and trauma on the one hand, and play fun joy can coexist together. And part of my healing journey was knowing that I just didn't always have to sit in places of grieving and hurt and pain, but I could also sit in places that were deeply rooted in gratitude. And just because this car accident, and, and, and I didn't mention this in the, original, in the original story, but the car accident happened the day after my dad's birthday. So it was like Thanksgiving, and then you have a birthday, which is like another celebration, and then you have this car accident. And how can we just, you know, poke a little fun and laugh a little bit at just how ridiculous <laughs> that situation was? And, 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 I, and, I'm, and I think I'm still trying to find those moments of just being like, okay, Tiffany, we know that you went through something traumatic. We know you've dedicated your life to really uplifting and amplifying the disability community, but can you just laugh? at how fun and ridiculous things are sometimes and just, mm -hmm. just, just channel, right. channel that, inner, right. that inner nine-year-old Tiffany. Oh, beautiful. And, and so true. I can feel the, the truth of that, the, the power of that. I'm wondering if you had any ask for me with Esalen in terms of making it a better and safer space for the disabled community. Mm. That's a great question. Um, I feel like 
you know, when I think, when I think about Esalen, when I think about my experience at Esalen, there were a couple different things that went through my mind. One is, how do I physically get there, right? So I live in San Francisco, and I don't, I don't have access to a car. So then it was like, okay, do I rent one? Do I find a friend who's going? I'm just thinking about my experience at Esalen, and I'm thinking about, and maybe it was as a disabled person, maybe it was other aspects of intersectionality at play, but I remember the opportunity when I was invited to this retreat at Esalen, and the first thing that, that went through my mind was, how am I going to make this work? This is also what I want to highlight with wellness as well as, right, is that it's a practice. And so every single day you're making decisions as to whether or not you're investing in your wellness. And so when I got this invitation to come to this retreat, my mind was already saying, here are all the ways it's not going to work for me. And I, I want to share that with you because I have a feeling that there may be other disabled people who feel that way in terms of any situations where they may have not felt like they've had access before. So a little bit of, of it is having like a little bit of like a call-in or a check-in to say, this is a space where maybe I haven't felt safe before, but how can I feel called in to push through my own discomfort to say that this is a space for me? So I know I'm talking a little bit abstractly, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, when I walked into Esalen, my mind was saying, this is not a space for me, but I pushed through my own discomfort to say, I belong here and I deserve to, you know, have this week of healing for myself. Um, so it does go both ways. And I think, you know, of course, we can talk about the physical access. That's the one, that's one part of it. Then, of course, there's the financial access. It's really just thinking about access all across the board. There's another group I'm part of called the Dinner Party, and uh, I know that they have had some retreats at Esalen. And I think what I want to tell any listeners here, and if any disabled people are listening, is that Esalen to me is this place of really transformative healing. Whether or not, it's almost like when I showed up there, even if I was part of the retreat I was participating in or not, there was just something about being so entrenched in nature, you know, being for meals like four hours outside of, of where I live that gave me the permission to just be there. We've talked about origin stories throughout this entire call. And I did mention earlier, like some people might never get to their second origin story. And then I wonder if there's maybe even a third origin story, which so the first origin story is like, what, how did you become disabled? For some people, it's by birth, for me, it was a car accident. Second origin story is, here's how I became proud of a disability identity. But then I wonder if there's a third disability origin story that's like, here's where I realized that I could take up space and that I could really invest in my wellness and being my full self. Mm-hmm. I'd love to stay in touch to really think about how this physical space can really can really open its doors and maybe it's, it starts through the listening of, of this digital conversation. But yeah, how can, we, how can we transition this conversation into a longer relationship? And I often tell people, you know, none of these things are a moment. Black Lives Matter isn't a moment. What's happening with the disability rights movement? We're, we're hitting our 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act this year. We're still moving. Hopefully for, for me, for you, and in the context of Esalen, this is the beginning of that conversation. So, Great. You have, I, you have my <laughs> commitment to – no, you have my commitment to, to stay connected and to stay dedicated to that mission sure. of making Esalen more accessible for disabled communities. And, and part of that is, is, as you say, it's not just the physical space. It's the stories that are being told. It's the representation, and that, and that is something that I do. Tiffany, tell me about the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter. Um, it is another way. I call this flipping the script on philanthropy. So about in 2017, a friend, Alice Wong, who is a, another really incredible disability advocate, I met with her and I said, I have this dream of creating like a fund that invests in disabled people. I'm not quite sure how to, how to make it happen, but I really just believe in showing that we do have economic power and that we want to invest that within our community. 
And so she told me about this organization called the Awesome Foundation, which is, and they have chapters all over the world, and pretty much the premise of the Awesome Foundation is to invest in awesome projects or to invest in projects that are improving the awesomeness in the world. And so then, then she said, you know, it would be interesting if you started a chapter that was focused on disability projects. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. So the way the Austin Foundation works is, is it's a little bit of a giving circle. And so the people who are the trustees end up contributing, say, $25 to $100 per month to make up an $1,000 grant that, that each Austin Foundation chapter awards to different awesome projects. In my mind, I said, well, I started my career in finance. I think I could find 10 friends to give me $100 per month so that we could get this chapter up and running. And Alice challenged me and she said, well, what if all of our trustees were disabled? That really got me thinking, and that became the premise of what the Austin Foundation Disability Chapter is today, which is how can we show that disabled people are not just the beneficiaries, we're not just the recipients of charity, but we're also the funders of grants. We're also the trustees, the decision makers who are reviewing these grant applications to, to then decide who within our community can get $1,000 to take their project to the next level. And to date, we have awarded over $40,000 in grants to projects in, across eight countries. Interestingly enough, this is one of the projects that I'm working on that doesn't require a lot from me. It requires some reminders to our, to our trustees to contribute their monthly contribution, to make sure that they're voting. But the impact that we're having, what we're doing is we're investing, in, we're investing funds into people who are already doing the work, right? And I think oftentimes when we think about ego, we're like, oh, but this is my idea. But what if we just gave someone $1,000 to take something that, that, were, that they were already doing and to make it better? And the inspiration for the Austin Foundation Disability Chapter really came from my own experiences. So back in 2009, when I started Diversability, I applied for something. I was still in college at the time. I applied for something called the Reimagine Georgetown Grant. I asked for $500 to cover food at a launch event. And what's interesting is $500 might not go that far, but it was really the vote of confidence by someone else in an idea that I had. And as a disabled person, at least at that time, I had gotten so, so much messaging, maybe even as a woman, too, maybe, as an, maybe as a disabled Asian woman, again, this is where intersectionally comes into play, that my ideas didn't matter. And so for someone to tell me, hey, I really like this idea, it could be really, it could help us reimagine Georgetown, that was what the grant was for, so let's give her $500 to host her launch event. And I think about $500 in 2009 to now... Tiffany in 2020 still doing the same thing I was doing in 2009, but on a much wider, broader scale. I think that to me, just even like looking at that journey over the past 11 years makes me really proud. So I want to I at least play a small part in perhaps giving that opportunity and that vote of confidence to other people within our community. And if our listeners wanted to find the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter. How, what's the best way to do so? You can head to disability.awesomefoundation.org, or even if you go to awesomefoundation.org, uh, you'll see a list of all of the chapters that you can apply that you can apply to. And you know, e even as I think about impact, I think one of the interesting byproducts of the creation of the Awesome Foundation Disability Chapter is there have been a couple of other thematic chapters that have been created. There, I'm just looking at the website now. There is one focused on investing in homelessness projects. There is a new chapter that has just emerged that is investing in projects related to science technology. There's a vegan one, although I'm not quite sure what the timing of it is. And then there's one focused on libraries and making libraries better. And so I, I also feel really good that we have shown this umbrella organization that we sit under, we've shown the Austin Foundation as an organization that thematic chapters can work. When I think about solutions, like I've been thinking a lot about now in this COVID environment, we, are, we have become borderless. COVID-19 is borderless. The wildfires, unfortunately, are borderless. So as we think through solutions, how can we really invest in 
the people who are doing the work, no matter where they are in the world. I mean, I know with, with the bank and trying to send international wires, that, that may present its own, its own set of, of challenges. But, but I think that's why I wanted to create a thematic chapter that was global. So long story short, uh, head to disability.awesomefoundation.org. And, and that's what I really like about the Awesome Foundation is it's very low barrier to entry. And again, it's like the impact that you can have. And I know I'm just coming at, at this from a disability perspective, but what a, what a great, interesting, fascinating model. It's like $4.7, $4.8 million of grants awarded across all of these chapters, like almost 5,000 projects funded. To just be a small part of that movement is pretty incredible. So, so if anyone who's listening to this has an awesome idea, so most of the chapters are geographically focused. Um, but if you do have an awesome idea and it could use $1,000, if it's disability-related, you can apply to the disability chapter. If it's not disability-related, there there's a whole slew of chapters that you can apply for. Or if you have an idea and, and want to make an impact, and have the means to think about starting your own chapter. Well, great. That's a great call to action. I have a question that kind of just came to my mind over the course of this interview. What would you say, would you have advice for, for people who are opening up a romantic relationship with a disabled person? What are some of the things that they may not know that perhaps they should know to kind of engage in this yeah, in this relationship in an in a informed way. Mm. That is a really interesting question. I have been, I've been dating. <laughs> I have been a part of conversations with people who have disabilities who are unsure of whether or not to name them or include them in their profile. I think for me personally, again, I, I know I mentioned this earlier in this conversation. When I think about the disability experience, I think about how much of our experience has been dehumanizing. And one part of that is the fact that people think that because we're disabled, we have to like focus on our, our medical stuff and, and get all, all, all our health in order, that we don't have a desire to be in, in a romantic relationship or desire for human connection. And those are universal. I think that disability can be one of the most human experiences possible. When I, like, even if I think about my own disability journey, I think about, I, there was someone that I dated from 2017 until the end of 2018 who really just saw me as beautiful. And I bring this, I feel like there's a very vulnerable share, but I bring this up because I had received so much messaging that because I was disabled, because I had a disabled body, I was ugly. Mm. And when I had this romantic partner validate that in me, it gave me permission to see that in myself. And this is at the root of what we're creating at Diversibility, which is not romantic relationships, but is just relationships, is how can we create peer-to-peer -peer equal relationships? How can we understand that interdependence is also a part of the human condition? And what I mean by that is I don't want someone to date me because they feel sorry for me. I want someone to date me because, because they're attracted to me. And it's interesting because I think I, I struggle with this question a lot because I feel so compelled to say, like you, should, like, you should just view dating me as you would anyone else. I'm trying to date during this pandemic, and there's something kind of ridiculous about that and kind of funny, right? Again, it's this, like, PFJ, like, how can I poke fun at the absurdity of the situation of trying to meet someone new during a time where we're being asked to stay at home. Uh, yeah, it's like, how can I incorporate more fun and playfulness into my disability lived experience and share that with you? And also, uh, I guess, you know, it's, I don't really like using this word, but like normalize the fact that I, I'm, I'm a millennial who like is living in a city of a bunch of other ambitious person. I feel like I've been very I've had a lot of success in my career as well. I'm like strong, I call it the SIWs, the strong independent women. I'm disabled as well. And I bring that experience into dating. And I, and I think what's interesting for me is I have on my profile pictures with, with my arm and wearing my splints. And some people will say, hey, like, 
why are you wearing that? And then I'll tell them, um, I'll tell them what happened. But I think for me, I, I'm not trying to catfish anyone. You know, we talk so much about taking pride over our disability identity and having it be the blanket I'm wearing. And so if my disability, if I view my disability as a blanket, I'm going to show it in my pictures. I'm going to show it in the copy. And, 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 and actually, this question is making me reflect on years ago when I first entered dating as a young professional in New York City, I would wait until the third or fourth date to tell someone about the car accident and a lot of times my, the people I was dating at the time didn't even notice that my arm was paralyzed or that I had a disability. And it was really, I think, my own, what I call my own internalized ableism that I didn't, or maybe, you know, it could be a sense of psychological safety. It could be safety as well that I didn't feel, or it could be shame that I didn't feel comfortable sharing such a hard story with someone so early on in a relationship. I think the way I'm trying to view, I feel very long-winded in the way I tried to answer this question, but, but I think you're, giving, you're really giving me an opportunity to reflect on how much I've grown in terms of how I show up in dating as well, which is back in the day, it was, it was still the hiding, it was still the waiting, like, let me, let me wait until I hook them to how yeah, my personality, right. <laughs> you know? Um, but now I'm just like, hey, like, I, um, I have a part of my body that's different, it's something that I feel very proud of, and if that's not for you, then that's great, right? I mean, I think we all have preferences when we come into dating, and it's just finding, it's finding the person who will acknowledge our kintsugi, which is the porcelain bowl with the gold, <laughs> with the gold trim. <laughs> yes, that's great. Well, thanks for going out on a limb and sort of like thinking through that on the, on the fly. Yeah, Tiffany, I want to um, maybe wrap up this interview by asking you a question that I ask uh, a lot of my guests, not all of them, but it is, what, what's your secret superpower? What, what is something that you're really good at that not many people know about? And then after you answer that, would you be so kind as to let all of our listeners know how to find you in the world and follow what you're doing? Sure. So secret superpower. I'll tell you two things. So I feel like my superpower is vulnerability. I, I read Brene Brown's Daring Greatly in 2016, and after reading that book, I made an intentional decision that I wanted to move about the world and have people meet me where I was, whatever messiness that was. And what I have learned that it does is that it gives other people permission to share where they are. And I find that some of the most meaningful relationships I've had with people are, are in these cracks. You know, the things that, I, that aren't super polished, that I haven't really figured out. It's almost like that dating question that you asked me was, was a little bit of that, right? It was like kind of giving you an insight into like, here's something that I'm still trying to work through that I haven't yet figured out yet, that I haven't given a TED Talk on. <laughs> so, so, that, so I take a lot of pride in leading with vulnerability. But I think the, the secret, I don't know if it's a superpower, but my secret is that I have been active on TikTok, and it has been a real source of PFJ, play fun joy for me during the uh -huh. pandemic. And the reason why I bring up TikTok is, it's really allowing me to tap into creativity in a way that I haven't before. And to put out something imperfect, right, the max length you can put out on TikTok ranges from like 15 seconds to a minute. So not only am I tapping into my creativity, but I'm also connecting with new audiences that I had never really touched before in my work. I find that Instagram and a lot of the other social channels are very highly curated that, you know, part of what, I think we're asking people to do in this age of the social dilemma, which is this documentary that just came out on Netflix, is to follow people you don't agree with, right? So now on TikTok, I'm interacting with people who have very traditional, potentially ableist views around disability. And how can I use that as an invitation for conversation? So I guess I'll say, as I now have talked through my, the fact that I have a TikTok account, is that maybe my second... <laughs> <laughs> Secret superpower is that I really view or I'm really actively trying to view discomfort 
discomfort as an opportunity to have a conversation and an opportunity for growth and unlearning. And especially in the social justice context that we're in now, I'm acknowledging I have a lot of unlearning that I'm wanting to do. I don't know if I would call that a superpower, and I actually think that's a, li a little bit tied into the vulnerability piece, but it's just acknowledging that there are things and conversations that I feel uncomfortable around, and how can I use that as an opportunity to really dig deeper and continue doing the work, right, which is, I think, at the heart of all of our wellness journeys. And mm -hmm. if people want to follow me or if they want to follow DiverseAbility, you can find us across social media. I'm Tiffany Yu. That's the letter I, the letter M, just those two letters followed by my first and last name. And then DiverseAbility is D-I-V-E-R-S-A-D-I-L-I-T-Y across social media. Well, Tiffany, thank you for this enlightening, enjoyable, educational, and very fun conversation. Thank you for the PFJ acronym. And thanks for, thanks for all this perspective about intersectionality, visibility, uh, semantics, and more. For sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Terry Gilby and Michelle Broderick. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions.